Right now, humankind is on a crash course with Mother Nature, and there's no Planet B. Governments and mass media seem intent on sedating our urgency to act. The Disrupting Disaster podcast series will offer education, insight, interviews, and opportunities to act, and is proudly brought to you by Lush Digital Media. Hello, my name is Charlie Caruso, and this podcast is called Kyoto Catch-Up, and it's a little refresher for those who'd like to be uh, updated about the Kyoto Protocol uh, that we probably all know by name, but not necessarily understand the details and the significance of it, especially leading up to the the very big and important uh, summit that's going to be held in Paris at the end of this year. Now, I've kicked James out for this episode because this podcast is more about providing uh, those that are interested with some information about Kyoto so that they feel that they're more or less on top of uh, where we're at and, and how successful that was. Now, to set the scene for our Kyoto catch-up, I'll include some audio from a recent WSEN summit of keynote Mark Hurlstone, who's from UWA's School of Psychology Behavioural Economics Laboratory. And here's a little bit from Mark Hurlstone and what he had to say about the Kyoto Protocol and the events leading up to it. Well, progress on establishing uh, an international climate treaty um, has been taking place for a long time and it has unfortunately been painfully slow. Um, so these negotiations started essentially uh, at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 when the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was established. Um, and at the Rio Earth Summit, uh, a treaty uh, was signed uh, by, by now at least 186 countries compelling governments to take action to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. The problem with the treaty uh, is it, it simply represents a mere acknowledgement amongst countries that they consider dangerous climate change to be a bad thing that we should avoid. But it doesn't actually specify any emission reduction targets for the government reducing those emissions. So it wasn't until uh, some five years later um, that the Kyoto Protocol was introduced in 1997. Uh, so this was a climate treaty with the specific goal of reducing global greenhouse gas emissions, initially uh, by 5% relative to 1990 levels. Uh, in order for it to come into force, it required 55 countries accounting for 55% global emissions to ratify the agreement. That didn't happen, however, until February 2005, when Russia finally signed up to the agreement. But the US, one of uh, the world's largest polluters, remains to this day a non-participant in the agreement. And for this reason, as well as others, the treaty has been largely unsuccessful in reducing emissions. In fact, the Montreal Protocol on ozone depletion, on which Kyoto was modelled explicitly, has actually been more effective at reducing emissions than Kyoto, despite the fact that it was introduced to solve a very different problem. Now, considering this week the White House has basically declared that the US President Barack Obama is going to be the global leader on climate change, the fact that the US has still not ratified Kyoto, it's concerning. I mean, none of the original targets set by the Kyoto Protocol are meaningful until the necessary countries ratify the protocol. And that means agreeing to the appropriate measures in place to achieve the reductions. 
Now, it was in 2001 that the US, which accounts for 30, just over 36% of the carbon dioxide emissions of the protocol, decided not to ratify. The European Union and Japan, which are the two large players that, that firmly support the protocol, have ratified it. And they've been working frantically to keep the support for the Kyoto Protocol in place. Now, both are relatively small, densely populated, developed countries that don't have access to their own low-cost sources of fossil fuels or hydropower. Setting aside environmental considerations, they see economic advantages for themselves if the protocol was to put into effect. Now, the most reluctant supporters of the treaty are the large, sparsely populated developed countries such as the US, Australia, Russia and Canada. And all these countries have relatively cheap energy supplies and, in short, run their economies and businesses would likely be at a disadvantage if the protocol were implemented without added incentives. So basically, Japan and the EU have got nothing to lose, whereas, you know, countries like Australia and the US, we, could, we don't have to do anything. We're not, we have um, resources that are based on fossil fuels. We can rely on that. It's cheaper for us to do that. And sadly, the reality is up until this stage, I guess the feeling has been, well, you know, give us some more reasons to do it. I do hope that the the recent years and uh, the, the many natural disasters that have happened, that um, these countries, you know, have started to now wake up to it. And I think perhaps the US has, but I'm not so sure about Australia. Despite being introduced in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol has still not been put into effect. And that 55-55 target that Mark Hurlstone talked about has still not been achieved. There's been a general reluctance to accept the agreement since controversy surrounds a number of issues. Now, the UNFCCC has held annual conferences to discuss and address these issues on individual concerns of some countries. But again, as Mark Hurlstone stated, that little progress has actually been made. So I'm going to explore a little bit as to why the Kyoto might not have delivered. Well, one of the factors that must be considered is the lack of any penalties uh, for non-compliance or withdrawal. So at present, no penalties exist for a country that ratifies the protocol and then fails to meet its reduction targets. And if any international climate treaty is going to work, there really does need to be some firm penalties or tried sanctions um, or emission penalties in order to make progress. And until now, no details for such penalties have ever been established. And as such, negotiations have been very slow and difficult. Furthermore, any country can withdraw from the treaty after ratifying it by simply giving one year's notice. The implications on this, on the progress of the treaty, is significant, obviously, because a lack of firm penalties for non-compliance or for withdrawal has existed currently. And, you know, it, it ends up embodying something that doesn't need to be taken seriously, as in, she's not doing it, so why should I? That kind of attitude has, has applied. It's too easy for countries like Australia to just slash our targets. It's too easy to withdraw or to not sign up at all. And that's really um, one of the most significant issues that has faced Kyoto Protocol and its uh, ability to really drive um, some serious change. 
While I understand that setting and agreeing to penalties might be difficult politically, economically even, not getting this right, certainly not getting this right in Paris seems a far worse option. It's not the only issue though. Uh, we've also got to consider the language that's been used and specifically the language around what constitutes emission reduction. Although all the countries that signed the Kyoto Protocol agreed to greenhouse gas reductions, they did not agree on exactly what's going to be counted as reductions. So some countries, particularly Canada and Russia, with their large forests, argue that they should receive credits towards their reduction targets for these carbon sinks that absorb greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere across the globe. Other countries argued that integrating the planting of forests as a part of a regular industrial project should also count in some sort of way. But unfortunately, no real method exists for quantifying the actual benefits for either proposal. And while some allowances have been made, all of the parties involved claim that they have not yet been credited enough. So we really do need to clean up the language around future climate treaties and make a really firm decision about what does constitute as a carbon credit versus a carbon debit. Although it is worth noting that we have actually come quite a long way since 1997 in terms of our understanding and ability to measure carbon emissions and credits. Now, under the Kyoto Protocol, there are three mechanisms that allow countries and companies to buy, generate or trade emission credits. These credits then count towards the country's reduction target. The mechanisms are known as international emissions trading and you might certainly if you're in Australia have heard a lot about this from the former Labor government when we were trying to introduce a carbon tax. Now buying credits from other industrialised countries who have exceeded their reduction targets, joint implementation, investing in emissions reduction projects in other industrialised countries and clean development, investing in clean energy and other emission reduction projects in developing countries. The logic behind the three mechanisms is that the planet as a whole does not care where the reductions in emissions are achieved, simply that they are being achieved somewhere. As such, by investing in reduction projects on the other side of the globe, a country is still contributing to its own reduction quota. The controversy concerning the mechanism surrounds the fact that the methods for their actual use have yet to be finalised. If implemented, a new global market would emerge surrounding energy credits and they would be traded much the same way as other commodities are traded such as oil and coffee. Prices would fluctuate in supply and demand and there would certainly be ample opportunities for profits and losses. No methods for regulating this market have been finalised and some argue that that detracts from the Kyoto Protocol away from its true goal. By creating a marketplace out of emissions trading, the treaty would essentially transform to the act of reducing emissions into a game of economics. And that detracts from its true meaning, which is to really achieve the goals that will improve the quality of life for the planet. In addition to having these controversial flaws that have impeded the implementation and the success of the protocol, there are a number of fundamental shortcomings with the ideas behind the treaty that question its benefit as a whole. Now, one of the main uh, conditions and, and issues are is the exclusion of developing countries. 
Now, when the Kyoto Protocol was first introduced, there was no necessary um, mandatory requisite for BRIC nations to be involved. And while many agree that it would not be viable to require developing nations to meet reduction targets under the Kyoto Protocol, their exclusion raises some serious questions about the overall effectiveness of the agreement. I guess it's kind of a bit of that catch-22. We've understand that uh, developed nations now did use dirtier fuels in order to be able to um, industrialise and progress. So the idea that we tell other um, BRIC nations who are on that same pathway that they're not allowed to do that in the same way that we did is obviously quite hypocritical. But by not doing that, by accepting that there are going to be you know, nations like China and India, which account for a third of the world's population and continually are growing in terms of industrial capacity. And if they're left completely unchecked in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, then does that potentially undermine the point of the Kyoto in the first place if we just completely ignore what is going on in such important nations such as the BRICS? So that has definitely played um, a, a role in undermining the uh, global cooperation and trying to get global emissions down. We also do need to factor in cost and economic implications, although I do think that there is a, a significant shift in the way that um, the you know, consumer demand has actually made uh, renewable energies more of a viable option and in many ways sidetracked the need to be some sort of financial compensation for the cost of having to uh, reduce emissions. Just looking at you know the phenomenal uh, growth of solar, not just in Australia but around the world, we're starting to see that even the banks are making smart decisions because if they've got to look at protecting their money for their clients over a 50 to 100 year uh, time period, then they already know renewables is a smarter decision as opposed to the dirty fossil fuels. So we are already experiencing... Um, what others have argued is, is part of the issue being the cost and the economic implications of turning uh, to renewables and reducing greenhouse gases. And that argument itself might actually be already started to have been undermined just purely because of consumer demand for renewables. So that is definitely a positive to come out of uh, the, the argument that the cost is, is too great for countries to buy in. All of these issues definitely have accumulated to the situation that we find ourselves in today in the months leading up to Paris 2015. In the next episode, James and I will be discussing in greater detail some of the behavioural economic experiments discussed by Mark Hurlston in his recent keynote about what affects international cooperation, which had some really fascinating implications and insights that definitely should be utilised in Paris in December if we want to achieve the urgent outcomes we just desperately need. So definitely stay tuned for more Disrupting Disaster. My name is Charlie Caruso and thanks for supporting our podcast series. Ciao. You've been listening to Disrupting Disaster, proudly brought to you by Lush Digital Media. This is your journey too. Let's continue this conversation together. Until next week.